Welcome to People More Interesting Than Me, the podcast, where I step back and let fascinating individuals take the spotlight. Join me as I sit down with incredible guests who captivate and inspire, showcasing their stories, experiences, and wisdom that make them truly extraordinary. Tune in for engaging conversations that'll leave you enlightened and entertained. I mean, at least I'm entertained. Today, I'm honored to have a distinguished guest with us, Dr. Hannah Lapp. Dr. Lapp is a trailblazer in the fields of neuroendocrinology, physiology, and behavioral sciences. At the heart of Dr. Lapp's work is a profound exploration into how early life environmental exposures shape the intricate dance of didactic interactions between mothers and infants. Throughout her expertise, she seeks to unravel the mysteries of these interactions as a key mechanism for understanding neurobiological and health trajectories. Stay tuned and enjoy. So you're in Austin right now, started Maryland, and then you went to Boston. What made you leave from Boston to Austin? Was it the research money? <laughs> yeah, it was. So I graduated with my PhD and then I got a postdoc working with someone at UT Austin. I also have Dr. Hannah Lapp at the very top of this paper, just so you know, like, I don't forget the doctor title. I'm going to highlight that. And I know like everyone is either lazy or they just don't want to get a, a real job. What was your reasoning? Like what, what drove you to keep on getting your doctorate? Were you just fascinated? Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. You mean through graduate school or to continue? Yeah, like continue? obviously a lot of people get their master's degree, not including yeah. me. But like after that, it's like you really got, in my opinion, from what I've seen from people, you really got to push it. Like there's a master's degree, which is basically continued college. Getting your doctorate is like a whole different beast. It's like, at least from what I've seen with people, and you can disagree with that if you want. So I, my graduate program did not have a master's step. So it was just straight in. Um, so I don't have a master's. I, you just go straight on to a PhD. So it was a commitment from the beginning. Um, but it does get very different. So the first two years are very similar to a master's program where you're taking classes and working in the, in the lab. But then after that, it, you're mostly doing research. So it feels a little bit more like a job. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And I guess it depends on what doctor you're getting as well. And and I'm not talking about medical doctor or anything like that. I'm talking about like, uh, like a mathematical, like PhD yeah. is much different from uh, your specifically, is it? What is it? I'm going to butcher. It's either biology or no, just tell me. My, my PhD is in developmental and brain sciences. Okay. And yeah. man, that's so specific. That's awesome. And that was specific to Austin when you went, right? So finding a postdoc's a lot like, um, I mean, you have to find someone who has the research money to fund you, pay your salary. You have to find someone who um, research interests align with. That sounds with what, very what difficult. So you, and then you want to make sure you're moving into position where you're, you're going to learn new things. So it needs to align, but not too well. So you need to be probably bringing something new, some new skill to their lab, and then also be learning something new while you're in their lab. So, and so does that usually entail, like, like I was looking, like we were talking before on your papers and I guess 
in 2013, you were in your master's. So you at least had like three or four papers that you're co-authored on, right? Before you actually applied to that program. So that's what they kind of look like, look for in what you're trying to say, right? Like something that you can add to the party. Yeah, something I can add to the party. And then um, some papers that came out more in like 2019 were my dissertation work. So I talked about that, even though it wasn't published yet to kind of, because publications are always delayed a few years behind <laughs> the actual, the work. So. What, what's the reasoning for that? Is it just like peer review, peer review, peer review, or a matter of like, like research money or like curtailing another, or is it peer review? Peer review is a big one. Um, so mostly peer review. It depends on the study too. Like you might have some initial data from a project, but it, research moves so slow. So you could end, like a, if you're doing an animal project, you could end the animal portion and then have some initial data right off the bat and be presenting that at conferences. And it could be a full another year before you have the rest of the data from that project because you're processing tissue and running stats. And oh, yeah, because I guess, do you do a lot of DNA work with with uh you do okay quick question the mice like what does like my and i feel like this is gonna sound so silly but i can just imagine a bunch of researchers just talking for three hours on mice like this strain of mice i got this year was just like beautiful you guys talk about like mice like they're i don't know you know like the people in like farms going to the fair and like talking about their prize farm. That's what I see about like, we got this one batch. Is it like that? It's definitely like that. <laughs> and then you have mouse people and rat people. A lot of the work I've done, has been in rats. So I would call myself a rat person. Although Okay. I... Okay. And why, why would you, this, you'll probably, well, you'll probably, your colleagues will ask you this. Why do you prefer rats over mice? Um, For what I study, mostly I think rats are better model of maternal care because they generally show higher levels than okay. mice do. I also just, gen rats are a lot smarter than mice. So if you walk in the housing room, mice are afraid no matter what, they'll mm -hmm. run from you and they'll get more aggressive because they're scared. Uh, rats will learn like who you are and come up to the front of the cage and smell you. They're excited to see you. It's interesting. That's funny. Uh, and they'll learn, like, if you do any sort of cognitive tasks, they'll learn it a lot faster. Okay, one more stupid question. Huh? How has your perception of wild rats and mice changed? Has it? Uh, a little bit. I think that they're probably a lot smarter and they have way more interesting life experiences than our lab rats and mice. But we actually had mice living in, like, a storage container in our backyard like not that long ago a few months ago and I could I could not kill them like I, it's not a problem in the lab when there's like it's part of the experiment and planned and there's like that context and I can I've learned to kind of is it out of uh, fear or is it out of more like just being kind some of both I think <laughs> I think that there's like a I'm not in control of the situation like I mm. am in the lab like they're just going to pop out of anywhere. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it feels completely different. No, that makes sense. I, it's just funny how your perspective changes when you're like working at a job and doing something like that, like your, your perspective of what mice used to be and what mice are now. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
when I was reading your research and going through like some of the big things, like I mentioned earlier, is uh, maternal impact on offspring, environmental effects on maternal behavior, and early environmental impacts on offspring. Like two big things that popped into my mind was obviously nature versus nurture and your favorite class in high school, Mr. Appelstein, talking about mm -hmm. Harlow's classic uh, study on the monkeys. How would you say, and if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's there's two, one control set where they're given a, I think it's a, uh, like a fuzzy uh, monkey that's, uh, it's not locked, it's, it's not given a bottle or anything like that. I forget, what's the, uh, is it a bottle? And they drink more than yeah, they would with the, yeah. Uh, basically saying that comfort is better for the development of an early rhesus monkey or something like that. How would you say, I guess, um, your research extends that kind of study? And obviously you're not using monkeys because have you used monkeys before? No. <laughs> no, not yet, you mean. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely related. So a lot of what we, some of what we try to model is attachment and some of the components of attachment theory. And that's really what Harlow kind of laid the base for. A lot of my research focuses on like sensory exchange of information between mothers and infants and infants and parents. So um, like those, could, they could be vocalizations, but tactile stimulation is a big one. And so that it's like completely built off this idea that um, like, comfort or tactile, like comfortable, the fuzzy blanket on the, on the uh, Harlow's monkey was more comforting and promoted attachment differently than the wire monkey that um, had food mm -hmm. associated with it. So it's how all of these cues kind of like feed into um, the development of attachment um, between parents and offspring. And we use rats, uh, but I've also done some research with humans and tried to draw that. What do you do with that? What was the study like that with humans? Um, so, I mean, I've done, I've helped out with some studies that have looked at these micro interactions. So there's a someone at the University of Massachusetts and um, Ed Tronic, who has decades of work, and he was actually a student of Harry Harlow's. So mm -hmm. a little family tree. <laughs> um, and then I, right now I'm working with someone at Columbia University, um, who also, they use similar methods where they have these parent-infant face-to-face um, interactions and they videos, uh, video record them. And it's only like a five-minute or two-minute interaction. And then they microcode um, different sensory, sensory cues of the mother and of the infant in like one-second bin. So they're like, some some poor research assistant somewhere is painstakingly like, like going oh, second by second. Yeah. That's a nose nuzzle. Like, that's a three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they judge like uh facial like expression, how ha like their affect based on their facial expression, uh vocalizations, um, where the infant is looking and the parents looking, and then they look at basically how um one, the infant's behavior affects the mother and how they, they respond. And some, that's sometimes called maternal sensitivity and, and vice versa, how much the infant responds to the mother. Um, so these, and these scores and these statistics have um, the ability to predict different in, infant mm -hmm. developmental outcomes. So attachment, yeah. function, things like that. 
Yeah, when I, I was reading through the stuff, the new new thing that kind of popped in my head was the what you were just, just saying, caregivers slash offspring, like interplay. Like I never thought of it until like I had my own kids. And it's like, this is going to sound super cruel, but it's completely honest. Like I don't really see my kids as really my kids until they start interacting with me, like on a like a higher level. Like I, it, I, I see it as like a give and take, like the first like couple of years of their life, you're taking care of them. You'll get a smile and a laugh, but when they start like saying your name and like, uh, you know, mirror, like, what is that called? Mirror neurons where they mimic mm -hmm. what you're doing and they slowly mm -hmm. start picking up stuff that you do. That's when I, and tell me if, if this is what I guess you saw from your studies, but like, I feel like the people selfish like me and they didn't produce the child for nine or 10 months. Technically, I feel like my wife has more in the game than I do because she's the one who really made the child. And I just helped out a teeny weeny bit, <laughs> but I feel like when the child gives back selfishly, I feel like giving like all of it rather than when you're like up at 2 AM and. Yeah, yeah. I think um, our brains are wired to respond to I mean, this is true of like adult social behavior, right? Just interacting, you're wired to respond to what the other person's doing. Um, so when it, yeah, when they respond, I'm sure it it's yeah. strengthens the relationship. Um, and there are a lot of hormone changes that happen in both parents, actually, that facilitate kind of attuning to those infant cues. How do you guys do that? Like, so instantaneously take like chemical surges, like, uh, like dopamine, do you take it like right after? I feel like that would be hard unless there's some way to like an IV line or something like that. In humans or? In no, no, sorry. In, in rodents, in rodents. <laughs> um, so dopamine's a tough one because it it does it's not very stable. So you'd have to kind of measure it right away. Um, and so, yeah, you can insert like little kind of collection tubes in certain brain regions. Um, okay. But you can also just collect. Often we collect and measure hormones in blood. Okay. That's kind of the easiest, the easiest way to do it. Okay. That makes so, sense. But you'd yeah, have to do it I, right after interactions or like high level interactions. Um, it depends on the hormones. So I've done the stress hormone cortisol or corticosterone in rodents is probably the one I've measured the most often. And, um, it increases in blood in about three minutes. Um, I, in humans, we've collected a lot of saliva samples and it doesn't, um, show up into, in saliva until about 15 to 20 minutes after the stressors experience. So, um, you have a bit more time, but yeah, you can, you just have to time it. Okay. Cause it, it's funny, like, I, I don't know how to explain this, but you think about like a researcher and how they use like rats or mice. I didn't even think about that. That's one example, but you don't think about the in-between like, oh, they did this study, but like, how did they take the blood? How did they like get all these results? And it's funny. It's probably like a lot of like physical work to like do this and make sure like something stupid to give an example. My son was watching Bob the Builder the other day, you know, that old show. And I'm like, they must have so much patience with doing claymation because they just have to stop like every two seconds that this character moves and I'm like, it must just be like the worst. <laughs> and it's just sometimes people don't know how much work is put into something. And then you look at the research paper, but you don't see like the long hours in the lab. Yeah. You don't see like, 
like how many times have you had to use a restart like a like a new set of rats or mice before like has that ever been an issue where you're like oh crap i just like <laughs> like we gotta restart uh -huh. I don't think I've ever had like a catastrophic this we can't use anything. There's definitely been a few studies where the I've had to like pivot to kind of tell a different story than I originally set out to. And some of that's based off of the methods that we couldn't do that we thought we would be able to. And some of it um, is just related to the data we found. And, you know, there's this other story here. I don't think I've ever had to completely order a new set of mice or rats to, to start yeah. a study, but often we do a pilot study. You'll do like a mini version of the study, iron out some of the methods and make sure you, you can do it and then hopefully plan your logistics well for the larger do you, study. Do you feel like that would be like a complete failure? Not a complete failure, but like, like such a story other people would repeat. Like, oh, did you hear about Lauren down the hall? Like... <laughs> all rats died like she has to order new ones she's got to ask a request to buy new rats like that seems like i'm sure that is happening yeah <laughs> that would be a well a pretty research funny story um so can you kind of explain what the process is like like overall researcher like i i i guess i mentioned a little template is it kind of like you've got to write like a 30 page paper requesting like funding requesting this amount of time like this room like equipment stuff like that what's that like um it depends on where your funding is coming from so sometimes there are startup startup funds which are kind of funds that um, are given to faculty that are they can use at their discretion um, when they're starting their own lab um, so the, those are the easy, those are the most flexible. You can kind of do what you want, buy the equipment you need, run whatever. Um, but yeah, if you don't have that, uh, you apply for a grant and you have to put in a budget and you have to hope, hope it gets funded. Um, and it often takes many rounds. So a couple years of resubmitting and some of it, I mean, there's so many good grant applications and not enough good, uh, not enough grant money. So it could take a while. So what what is it like if somebody doesn't like get any grant money? Is they are they just like slowly kicked out of the university? I guess if they're not doing like and yeah, it depends if they have tenure. Okay. Uh, if they have tenure, probably not. If they don't have tenure, then that is probably depending on their institution, it might hurt their ability to get tenure. Uh, but that's also kind of like why you get startup funding when mm -hmm. you open a new lab they don't want you to start from nothing gotcha no that makes so, sense yeah and then if you get funding um then yeah you start ordering the supplies you need a lot of like the big pieces of equipment are you can share them between labs or their uh, the institution has them or they're ordered kind of when the lab is set up so it's usually not um not a lot of startup caught or when I say that, I mean like the big equipment, like I would imagine the rats share apartments or something like that, right? Like there's a huge <laughs> yeah. like rat cages and stuff like that. Um, no, that sounds it. That sounds like it would be, this is going to sound stupid maybe, but like a good reality show, like, like you have a huge <laughs> like research facility. I don't know. It sounds good to me. And there's just like people like, 
competing for there's a there was a there's a lot more DIY in research than I would have you said DIY you mean DIY yeah DIY yeah yeah no but I mean another thing before I forget I want to talk about your your I I don't know how you phrase this but Amber basically what what you were talking about what they were doing with humans you did with rats right from what I looked at on the uh diagrams and pictures you were coding different points of the rat and you're doing just that you I wouldn't say eh, you could say made your own algorithm where every time I guess a certain body part or came in contact with the infant and the caregiver that was kind of like what you were talking about do you feel like that helps condense at least a lot of your studies where you can use your model when I say amber uh, by the way, people, this is, I, I don't know what the acronym stands for. She can tell after, but this isn't uh, camera coding for you. You explain it. You'll, you're going to do it <laughs> even better than I can. Yeah. Um, so it uses, um, it's a pipeline and it's automates the scoring of home cage maternal behavior for rodents. So um, when you have a mom, rat or mouse in the cage with a litter of pups, um, I do a lot of developmental research where we care about maternal behavior because it's the amount of maternal behavior is going to be a moderator for whatever effects we're looking at. Um, so we want to quantify maternal behavior, but there's not a very easy way to do that. It's mostly manually scored or people just go in and do it for very uh, brief times during the day, just kind of scan the cages. And so that doesn't, you're missing a lot of information. So kind of the goal of the pipeline was to automate this process so you can give like really long videos and have really accurate um, measures of maternal behavior. And a big so sample, more, more mm -hmm. samples too, right? Like you yeah, have a lot more data. And yeah. are you, are you able to apply, like, obviously this was a paper as well. Are you able to basically use your, this Amber on like any future projects too? Like, that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. I mean, that, that basically yeah. probably works down your, uh, I don't know, by like a factor of what, three or like you said, people have to come in to monitor this way. If as long as I guess you do a, a check to make sure it's doing it correctly, in theory, mm -hmm. you could do this like for a lot of different projects at the same time, as long as everything else is consistent. Yeah, it took a long time to develop to develop the pipeline. And that's what kept me going is that once I have it working, it's going to pay it's being off something like automated that like. Yeah, and, yeah. and then the other thing is, did you, I don't know, stupid question, but did you, can you patent this? No. So the. It, since it's technically research. It's technically research. So actually the pipeline uses two um, build, it uses two open source tools that I did not develop. Okay. Um, so so and that's, is that like the mapping, like the, the camera mapping is probably one of them, right? Yeah, so there's the pose estimation, which is assigning the like points of the body parts in the first step, and then the second step is it's it's kind of a wrapper where you, it makes it easy to import your behavior mm -hmm. data and then run the algorithms that find the behavior from those coordinate data. Yeah, because if you I guess if you were to sell it, you would have to pay a portion to the two um, that you borrowed from. It's like Linux. If you're familiar with that platform, if anyone mm -hmm. ever sells Linux, they have to uh, give a portion to uh, 
yeah. the people who originally did it. I'm trying to be a supporter of open science as well. So <laughs> we want, oh, I want people to be able to use it. And, and that goes to my use. next, that goes to my next question. How many people, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, how many people have used that paper for their own mouse or rat studies already? Cause I know you finished this last year. Is that right? Or the paper came out, getting... came out. Yeah, the paper came out in September. Um, so it's still rel <laughs> relatively new. Um, I'm working with, I don't know, probably five or six other labs to help them incorporate it into their research. Isn't that now. awesome? Yeah, it's really is fun. That, I really that, enjoy it. Is that like, so I was going to ask this earlier, what has been your best moment of being a researcher in your career so far? Hmm. Oh, it's hard to pick one. I defending my dissertation. I felt I was very proud, and it felt good to have accomplished everything. What did you, you do after that? After you defended it? After I defended it, I went and I did a trip across Utah to all the national parks. For hey, like that's not bad. Did you go to <laughs> yeah. Angel's Landing? Um, I I didn't go all the way up. You're afraid of heights, or were you yeah. afraid of that sign that said thirteen people was, had died? Yeah, and it was very crowded the day we were there, and I... I totally get it. I didn't go all the way up either, so I'm not judging you. But yeah, that is a great trip, though. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then I moved to Texas. <laughs> You're not too far... Uh, I forget. Austin is like... I don't... It doesn't matter. I don't remember. It's right in the middle. Okay, so you have to drive basically eight hours to go north out of it, right? Yeah. Um. What was the other thing you said? Uh, another big oh, moment. and then so actually, I you know people post on like science Twitter when they're presenting a poster at a conference, and uh, so I did that last year for a conference I was at, and then my tweet got a lot more attention. This is the first time I like ever was going to talk about or present Amber, and my tweet kind of went. I wouldn't say viral, but maybe viral by science standards. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I, that kind of like, you know, I got a lot of positive attention. People were excited about it, motivated me to finish the project and open up some opportunities. So no, that was that, a, that's yeah. awesome. Well, I was totally thrown by like, you've got five different universities contacting you and do like any companies contact you for that stuff as well. Like, I mean, there's probably a lot of companies work working with rats and mice, especially for pharmaceutical studies and and studies I don't even know, but like, what about companies and uh, other platforms besides universities? Um, some, I was invited to um, this machine learning workshop for home cage monitoring um, oh, okay. by a European group in, okay. in September, and they had a lot of people from both industry and academia there. So it was a fun kind of group to talk to a lot of software engineers and other people trying to make home cage monitoring. So this is similar to this flavor, but I was I was looking at a video, I don't know if it was last week, and it was on the negative end of monitoring. And it well, I wouldn't say negative, but more monetarily driven. It was a coffee shop and it showed each individual that was sitting down drinking a coffee, but it was showing how long they had been there. And then it had also had, and when I say it had like the timers above each one of these people. And then it had the servers for the people and it showed how many coffees 
they had served. So it was kind of like tracking their productivity and it was like uh -huh. monitoring loiters in the coffee house. And I was like, man, it, and the funny thing is it was just like retro, like cameras. It was like cameras you would see in like 1995, but they had like, and it, it's just funny how like monitoring has gone to that level where. Yeah. The technology's there. Yeah, because I mean, like, if you assume you're doing this with mice and rats right now, you can imagine that, like, DHS, CIA, like, all these, like, governmental companies are monitoring people through, you know, like, public cameras, maybe not public cameras that are kind of doing the same thing for suspicious activities, you know, large packages that are in, like, you know, what, what everyone hears every five minutes in an airport all unintended baggages, you know, like they're, right. they're probably looking on the ground for that, looking for like a large mass next to that, like suitcase. Um, but yeah, it's crazy to think that, uh, and that's why the captcha keeps on getting more difficult, like over and over. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like sometimes I can't even do it, like pick out all the crosswalks or all the, uh, bicycles. Yeah. Um, so we talked about what does success look like to a researcher. So right now you're in your educational discovery phase of uh, using rats and mice. Do you ever see yourself like is the next step moving to like a research company or a biomedical company? It, obviously, that might be a next step. But what are the like uh, next steps that are usually taken from a person in your position? So I, I have two options going into industry, going into pharmaceutical, and that could look um, like anything, any kind of job you can imagine that is relevant to any of the skills I have, um, or try to get a faculty position at a university. So those are my options. Well, I'm open either, but I am going to try for to get a faculty position and see, okay. see how and are, I would assume those are much more, how do I phrase this, much more competitive, I guess? Yeah, there's very few of them. And it's, there's a lot of highly qualified people. So it's, it definitely is a bottleneck. Um, and then all, like, it's also a little bit about luck and what's available. So there's not very who many, you know. Who you know, and then also who they're looking for. It might be that they have like a group of faculty and they don't have someone who covers like a, the addiction space or something. So they might be looking for someone in that. And so even if yeah. I want to apply, that's not really what I study. So I wouldn't be a good fit. And so then, it's just, yeah. And the job cycles are like, there's one job cycle a year. So if it doesn't have to happen, if it's not open that year, you got to wait another year. Okay. And would you say that, like, then tell me if I'm wrong on this, but U.S. health, like, organization, this is just an example, gives funding for $25 million for academics to research, I don't know, like, patting your child on the head type research, and the university is looking for a professor who's done stuff like that. Is that kind of how the funding is driven, usually? And I'm not saying U.S. health is driving it, but you know, the money drives. Yeah, primarily. So um, 
when you you're expected if you're getting a research uh, position at a R1 university, you're expected to bring in grant money. And so you do need a research program that is going to bring in grant money. Um, so for us, that usually comes from NIH, sometimes NSF as well. Um, so you're, it helps if you're researching. National is, Science oh, Foundation? Yes. Okay. NSF. Um, and yeah, so it helps with if your research is aligned with the goals of NIH. Okay. So Makes sense. For me, that would mean, you know, contributing to helping figure out underlying causes of mental health disorders or of some kind, generally, or child development. Mm -hmm. So I guess my big question is, what do you see as, is there anything that's kind of like, not your end goal, but that you're trying to reach with your research? Anything or any research study that's kind of like, you know, like everybody's, well, not everybody, but some people have like a big goal that they're eventually slowly trying to take away. Is there anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple of them, I think. It's, they feel so big. I don't know that if I, I know that there's a lot of us working on these problems, so I don't know if they're attainable even in the course of my whole career, but trying to figure out how um, so, like environmental factors affect long-term health, including the brain, um, and then also how we can intervene early on. And like, as I mentioned earlier, um, early life social interactions, particularly between parents and infants are really powerful regulators. So that's kind of where I focus. If we can figure out how to harness that power to, you know, um, improve outcomes for people who experience early life chemical exposures or, or early life stress or other unfortunate events that increase the susceptibility to negative outcomes later in life, then that, that's kind of my overarching. Because, yeah, I saw you had a, a couple big studies. I think one of the ones that really hit me was that, um, obviously, I think it was maternal, but maternal, like, stress incidents in the mother can be um, genetically passed down to the next generation, which was, I mean, it makes sense when you look at, like, larger scale stuff like people being afraid of, like, snakes that's never seen snakes before or uh, uh babies knowing like facial expressions without even being taught but like having inherited stress just feels like <laughs> I, I don't know that you've already lost the game how like and what have you seen with that like what which study was that i, I was trying to remember um i'm not sure are was it a human study maybe Maybe, maybe it was a human, so I, I can't remember. But when I, I read that, I was just like, man, that just seems like... And is that kind of along the lines of what... A lot. When we think genetics, often when we talk about inherit or when people hear the word inheritance, they think genes, but there's a lot of things that can get inherited. So you can inherit socioeconomic status or um, environments, all these, all these different things. Um, and so there's a lot of weight. And then when you're born or, you know, during gestation, the brain is very plastic and open to being affect, uh, affected by these external factors. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, like, yeah, I focused a lot on early childhood um, stressful experiences or adverse experiences, um, but also like 
maternal education is often a measure that is associated with kind of negative out health outcomes and education takes place well before, well, sometimes well before the infant is born, but it's still associated. Um, and so there's another study that's showing that like the, the socioeconomic status the mom grows up in affects the infant's outcome. So um, that's probably, I think, you know, embedded in her biology, um, but also just like kind of a proxy for a bunch of other things going on in the environment. So just like, no, no, it makes sense. It's just like what we said at the beginning. It's, it should never have been nature versus nurture. It should have just been nature nurture. Like they should have just yeah. made it one word, which is, I, it should be its own word. Is there any? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like hard to pull them apart and people have tried for a long time but there's so much back and forth between them like on a second by second basis that you can't really ever disentangle them from each other well yeah you should definitely read red queen at least read the summary of it see what you think okay. of it and i also have it on audiobook if you don't if you have like a 25 minute commute or something like that um but yeah no that's interesting i gotta i gotta um, and there's another book that I read that I think you'd like too because it, it's kind of got a, a sports appeal to it. It's called Range. Have you heard of that one? It's kind of talking mm -hmm. about uh, early development of um, a variety of skills. Like, for example, they talk about uh, uh, Robert Federer didn't start playing tennis until later on in his life, but he played like gymnastics. He did gymnastics. He did soccer. He did like all this other different stuff because it gave them like a better spatial awareness, gave him like better, um, I guess, um, I don't want to say like feeling of his, his body and his orientation, what his body could do and stuff like that. But it's other aspects like musician, like, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, okay. My last question, what is something that your parents did? that you'd like to pass on to a next generation? And what is something that you might uh, want to do differently um, if you were to have kids? So something that my parents did for me that I'd like to pass on, my parents um, encouraged me and my siblings to um, you know, work really hard and they were good examples of that, but work really hard in particular at things that you feel passionate about or you're excited about. So I, it's funny that you just said that because I, my parents put me in a lot of activities when I was young. I did ice skating, I did gymnastics, ballet, piano, dance, and they let me quit the ones that I clearly wasn't enjoying, <laughs> but also really encouraged me to work hard. Um, and I think like I developed a good work ethic because of them. Um, so yeah, that's something I definitely want to be able to pass on. And I think it's, it's easier to work hard at something that you're excited about. So added bonus. Um, and then something that they did that I wouldn't, that I might want to change. Um, my parents weren't great at having difficult conversations or like talking about things that were unpleasant or, you know, uncomfortable. And I think it started as kind of, they're trying to protect us when we were young, but then, uh, and then I think they just figured at some point we figure out what was going on. Um, but I think that, you know, we learned to, you know, we're not supposed to talk about bad things. And, um, I think as adults, we've had a lot of those conversations, but yeah, I think that's something I might want to 
change. Like that. That's that's a new one. I haven't heard that one yet. That's good. Um, and by the way, just so if my memory is right, your mom is in a similar field as you, right? She isn't she bio. No, my mom's a, she was an elementary school teacher and then she's done a lot of like curriculum and instruction development. Okay. I don't know why I thought that. Okay. She has a master's in school psychology. So that's. Okay. Maybe that's where I saw that. Okay. Well, by the way, thank you very much for doing this. I know after, are, are you teaching right now too? No, I don't have no. to teach. Oh, you must be that good of a researcher. Yeah, it's the perk of being a postdoc. You can just yeah. focus on reading. <laughs> I, gotta... I supervise some undergrads, so okay. I do some teaching, but no, I don't have. To okay, I was I was gonna say you gotta make sure you got that research money then. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thanks, thanks again for this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. This is fun. Yeah. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.